Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I will fight to protect you. I am your president of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. The country is crying out for leadership. Leadership that can unite us. Leadership that brings us together. In two completely different speeches, Donald Trump and Joe Biden set out what will be the central messages of their election campaigns. On the one hand, Donald Trump, the sitting president, he's exploiting the divisions that he created, arguing that it's Biden who will make things worse. On the other, Biden, the challenger. He's promising to heal the wounds caused by Trump and fight for the soul of America. Oddly, Biden, in a way, is suggesting he'll make America great again. If by great you mean when he was Obama's vice president. But beneath the simple slogans, there's an incredibly strange campaign going on. America is being ravaged by the coronavirus. It's having a reckoning over racial injustice. Millions are unemployed. It's a serious time, but jaw-dropping too. Trump says he should get a third term in office. That's the kind of thing a Tim Pop dictator would say. Biden's called a reporter a junkie. Again, totally normal. It's hard to follow if you live here and almost impossible to keep up from the UK. My name is Graham Demonick, and I'm a British journalist who's been living and working in America for four years. At HuffPost UK, we wanted to try to produce something that made sense of the US election for other Brits. Each week, between now and November, we'll try to tackle some of the biggest talking points. And to do that, we've enlisted the help of our reporting colleagues from our American team. In this, our first episode, we wanted to explore perhaps the question everyone in the UK is asking. Can Trump win? Joining me today are two of my colleagues from our US team, S.V. Date, senior White House correspondent who covers the Republicans and the Trump campaign. You'll hear me referring to S.V. as Sharish through the show. Hello there. How many US elections have you covered over the years, just out of interest? Oh dear, where we start? I guess 88 was my first one where I was... And do they do they get do they get easier by by the election cycle? Uh, no, but that's partly because of the president we have right now. And Ariel Edwards Levy, senior reporter and polling editor for HuffPost. Hello, Ariel. How are you? I'm great, thank you. So, guys, can Trump win? Sharish, what's your top line on that? Yes. He can, but because the election is still three months away. If if this were tomorrow, no, absolutely no way. It it seems that everyone is kind of nervous because people predicted that there's there's no way he could win. We said all we all said that in 2016, and he won. So he's the same person he was. 
But the difference is all the ridiculous things that he could do back then, that was a hypothetical. And now it's real. And it's the worst part of the the bad possibilities that we've gotten with this pandemic. Ariel, what's your 30-second thoughts on whether Trump can win or not? My main takeaway from 2016 is that unlikely and impossible are not the same thing. I think that right now where we are is highly unlikely, which doesn't mean impossible. And it doesn't mean that we know the exact state of the election in several months from now. So what are the polls telling us right now? If you watched American news in passing, it would seem that Biden's got a strong lead. He has done for some some time. Is that largely where we are at the moment? Yeah, I think that polls are telling a reasonably consistent story at the moment, which is that Biden has a seemingly fairly durable lead, depending on what aggregate you're looking at, probably somewhere between seven to 10 points over Donald Trump. And that is stronger than Hillary Clinton had for most of the 2016 campaign. Day-to-day estimates right now are a little misleading because we're right at the time when Clinton was getting her convention bump in 2016, depending on where you look at it. That being said, I think the fundamentals underlying the horse race numbers right now also look stronger for Joe Biden than they did for Hillary Clinton. Among those things, we see that his favorability numbers are better. We see that his absolute share of the vote is higher. All that being said, polls, you will hear this said a lot, they're snapshots, they're not predictions. There's a cliche that often goes around in British politics, I'm sure it's the same in the US, that the only poll that counts is the one on election day, right? Which drives me a little crazy in its own way. You know, I think... The thing about polls is that you can listen to what they're telling you, but you have to understand what they're actually saying, which is they give you a very good portrait of the race, not perfectly accurate, but they give you a pretty good sense of what's happening at any moment in time. So putting a bit of a UK slant on it and looking back to the polls in recent years that were seen as being wrong... We look at Brexit in 2016 and Jeremy Corbyn's relative success in the 2017 general election. These are both seen as evidence of the polls being wrong. Do polls get it wrong? They do sometimes. And I mean, certainly in 2016, what we saw in the United States was that the national polling was well within historical estimates. It said Hillary Clinton was going to win the popular vote. It overestimated that slightly. The difference with there, there were a couple of key states where the polling was unanimously off just enough to uh, give the wrong impression about who was going to win. So, yeah, I mean, I think polls generally do a pretty good job of suggesting the state of the race. They also don't seem in the U.S. to be off consistently in one direction or the other. And I was interested in this idea of a distrust in polls. Uh, Sharish, you've written about the Democrats and their anxiety following 2016. Can you explain a little bit about that and what people are feeling there? Right. I, I think there's a the split between the professional politicos, the people who run campaigns, and Democratic rank-and-file voters. 
And it has to do with they went into the 2016 election fully believing that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. And this was ridiculous that the Republicans had nominated Donald Trump. It's a good thing there's no chance he could win, isn't it? And, of course, they were horrified when when those three states uh, went for Trump that they thought were going to go for Clinton. There's a couple of others, of course. I mean, Hillary Clinton was feeling pretty good about North Carolina. They were feeling very good about Florida, and they lost those two as well pretty closely. So what's happening now is people are just reliving that. I mean, I think, and Ariel can speak to this, is last time people were asked, who do you think is going to win? And even Trump supporters said Hillary Clinton, by and large. And now, in uh, I think there's a recent poll in Pennsylvania where Biden's got a big lead in this poll, uh, 10, 11, 12 points, something like that. But And then they were asked, well, who's going to win? It was like 47, 46 to Trump. So I think that's that kind of unease, that, that fear of polls that came from what happened last time. Right. I mean, I know I've picked up on something in both of your reporting, this idea of a shy Trump supporter that's not showing up in the polls. And there's a comparison, I think, between the shy Tory conservative voter that emerged in 1992 for the first time they were apparently too embarrassed to tell pollsters that they would vote Tory, and that explains John Major's unexpected victory. I was with the Trump folks in the last week in Florida in 2016, and they were talking about the, the, the shy Trump voter theory. And they felt, well, we're only behind by two or three right now. Therefore, we're going to win because it's three to four percent of the shy Trump vote that is... Um, doesn't want to say that, oh, well, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump, but they're going to end up doing that. So in the end, we saw that didn't exist. I mean, the national poll was pretty much right on. You know, Clinton got almost three or two and a half points ahead, and that's what the polling said she would do. So I didn't buy it back in 2016, and I don't think I'm, I'm, not that I'm buying it right now. And another phenomena. I'm going to reflect on, I'm not sure whether you would call it a metric, but these boat parades and the boat people that seem to have been highlighted by Trump's advisors. Just a quick one. When you hear that sound, I'm pausing the chat to explain a bit of American jargon or a historical reference that the guests have brought up, just so it makes a bit more sense to someone listening in the UK. So while the polls don't seem to be in Trump's favour, he does seem to be getting a lot of support from people in boats. Yeah, that's right. These are boat parades that make clear they are very supportive of Trump. They've been written up in the press as part of a pro-Trump silent majority that isn't reflected in his poor polling or in the media and has been cited by Trump advisers as a sign of his popularity. Trump has even tweeted about the voters. Uh, I'm not going to do his accent, but he wrote, Thank you very much to our beautiful voters. I will never let you down. And we've got a clip of a parade in San Diego to give the UK audience a bit of a flavour of what these are like. Seeing a thousand boats out here with... 50 people or 20 that's people like per boat? Boats. That's a hundred boats? boats there. That's like a hundred. <laughs> Don't be like Trump. 
And that's exactly what I mean by people that are, for some reason, so against Trump that they don't understand that we're going to lose our country to other enemies if they don't come together. So, Ariel, do we use the boat people as any kind of metric, do you think? Is that going to appear in your polling analyses? I mean, boater models is certainly a new avenue for all of us to explore. Um, Just to weigh in quickly on the whole shy Trump voter thing, this has been something I've been looking at a bit lately because it's something that does come up because people, I think, are very gun shy. And there really is this idea that there's this, you know, hidden block, the silent majority of Trump supporters who are going to rear their heads on Election Day and not a moment before. And what we know is that it's hard to prove a negative, but there was a lot of research done on this in the aftermath of 2016. And there are places where you would expect to find evidence for a shy Trump vote if one existed that so far we haven't seen that. And there have been a few other experiments, you know, testing various ways of trying to let people say they support Trump without having to admit it outright. You don't see that difference. Probably a bigger issue would be if Trump supporters just weren't taking polls. But we've also had some experiments showing that Republicans, at least, are about as likely, or in some cases more likely, to take surveys than Democrats are. And I'm sure there was never much of a shy Tory theory anyway. It was just one of those things that became established as a thing people said to suggest they knew something about politics. Um, Anyway, let's move away from polling to how Trump's going to claw it back if he can. Um, We know things look bad, but can he salvage anything? Sharish, what's the the play here? We've already seen this. His, His strategy is to say, well, you think this is bad. Boy, it'll be so much worse if Joe Biden is president. And I mean, that's kind of all he has because this is what a re-election campaign is always about. It's about the incumbent. And if the incumbent can show that I've done a decent job, uh, almost always that person gets re-elected. And the times that hasn't happened was when people lost confidence in Jimmy Carter, for example, in, in 1980. And the test then was, okay, is the replacement going to be okay? Not is it going to be great. Is gonna be, can we see him as president? And then when Ronald Reagan didn't collapse in that debate, he won. So same thing with uh, with Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. Uh, Clinton showed that he's a credible person, and he won. And at this point, basically, they just have to show that somehow that Joe Biden is would be utterly unacceptable. Well, the guy was vice president for eight years when things were relatively good. So that's a tough sell for them. Yeah, but the circumstances Trump finds himself in are unprecedented, though, aren't they? Um, There are presidents who have had a bad economy, but this isn't just a bad economy. It's a potential depression, isn't it? The last few weeks are going to be significant. Um, Funny things can happen. What if the in the TV debates, Biden crashes and burns? What could happen that could turn things around for Trump? Well, I, I just don't see the debates being that important because Biden's was a known quantity. I mean, he was, he's was been a senator forever. He ran for president before. He was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years. 
So this isn't like Ronald Reagan, who was well-known in California, but kind of unknown the rest of the country. This is not like Bill Clinton, same deal, known in Arkansas, unknown the rest of the country. This is a this is a guy with a long track record. People are comfortable with him. A, a more realistic thing that could happen is uh, William Barr, the Attorney General, deciding that mid-October is the time to issue an arrest warrant for Hunter Biden or for Joe Biden or, or something crazy like that. And, you know, it would seem laughable, except he ran that stunt in Lafayette Park uh, back in June where they cleared the place so they and using batons and tear gas and they and I think they even beat up like this cameraman from New Zealand or Australia or someplace. The incident in Lafayette Park, Sharish is referring to, is the protests in Washington D.C. following the death of George Floyd. Law enforcement officers used tear gas and other riot control tactics to forcefully clear peaceful protesters from the square and surrounding streets. This created a path for Donald Trump to walk from the White House to St John's Church, where he had his picture taken holding a Bible. He later proclaimed himself to be the law and order president, which will form the backbone of his election campaign. So Bill Barr was behind that. Will he do something else? I'd be shocked if he didn't. Ariel, what do you think about the last few weeks of the campaign? I think at this point, anything that would be sufficiently big to just completely change this election would have to be something, by definition, entirely unexpected. Um, debates, I think, are one of those things where the conventional wisdom tends to somewhat overstate the usual impact. You saw that in the primary, for instance. And primaries are something where you don't have partisanship as this underlying force. So there's a lot more room for potential movement. And yet they didn't, for the most part, really move all that much. So unless you see something that just completely changes the views of who these two men are, and I think they're both, better for worse, pretty well-defined to the American electorate, it's hard to imagine that being the thing that just changes the game. I do think the issue for Trump this time around, in addition to everything else, is trying to define Biden negatively in the way that he was able to do with Hillary Clinton. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, sexism, the particulars of each candidate's backgrounds, the fact that Trump wasn't an incumbent that year, I think he was able to define Clinton. And is Biden playing his hand pretty well so far, do you think? He seems not to be doing anything, um, which seems to be the smartest thing he can do. Does he just carry on doing that and give Trump enough rope? Basically, yeah. Again, he's known to the country. People are comfortable with him. People may not be crazy about him. In fact, he won the Democratic nomination because most of the people thought, well, he's the best chance to beat Trump, and that's our number one objective right now. The only thing that matters is getting rid of Trump. So, sure, I mean, if Trump is going to come up with, with ideas like inject yourself with Lysol and have interviews like he had the other day. The Axios interview with Jonathan Swan? Absolutely, that one. And then the one like the week before that with Chris Wallace of Fox News, they were horrible. And if, if you know, Biden would just cut ads of that, not even say a word and say, look, this is what we have. And, and anyone can do better. I certainly can. 
You're listening to Running Mate, a HuffPost UK podcast for Brits trying to make sense of the US election. We will come back to Sharish and Ariel later, but I've also spoken to David Kochal, a Republican strategist who has worked on many campaigns to get Republicans elected. He's not a Trump enthusiast by any stretch, but he doesn't write off Trump's chances entirely. Uh, David, thanks very much for joining me. Um, just to set you up, you're, uh, so you're a registered Republican. You've worked on campaigns for senior Republicans that people in the UK would know. Um, Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. But you have problems with Donald Trump. Um, can you explain why and whether you're, despite being a rep- Republican, you, you might not vote for him? You're considering not voting for him? Well, I am I kind of, in 2016, obviously, I worked for Jeb Bush. Um, I was kind of, uh, I guess you could have cast me as a never-Trumper in 2016. Uh, right now, I would consider myself more of a Trump agnostic. Uh, I'm still trying to win races for Republicans around the country. Um, I still, uh, you know, believe in in conservatism and uh, limited government things that you know sort of brought me to the Republican Party when I was a lot younger. Um, so, you know, I think Trump is a phenomenon that sort of sits largely outside of uh, you know traditional party politics as I've practiced it for you know a number of decades now. So, so what's your what is your problem with Trump? Why? Why, why the agnostic about him? Uh, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I don't like the, the nationalist populist uh, philosophy that he brings to the White House. Um, I, I think it's, you know, not helpful for the country. I think we need to be, we need to build alliances around the world, not go it alone. Um, and I, I don't think that he shares a lot of my convictions when it comes to, you know, limited government, lower spending, lower taxes, although he did sign the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017, which I was a supporter of. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I have appreciated some of the judicial picks that he's made. So, uh, you know, I kind of, I see the the, the upside and the downside. Um, I, I do think the win he had in 2016 was uh, kind of marked a, a really a new era for the party. Um, a lot of, uh, uh non-college educated white working class voters who had traditionally been Democrats, um, you know, came over to the Republican Party. It doesn't appear that they're leaving. Uh, and the trade-off has been we're kind of not as strong as we have been in the suburbs. Uh, but um, he certainly crafted a, a interesting electoral strategy and kind of picked the lock on the electoral college in 2016. So I have a, I have a pretty good understanding of you know, what his appeal is and why he was able to be successful in 2016. A lot of that had to do with Hillary Clinton. Um, but um, yeah, so, you know, I just, he just doesn't fit with my uh, kind of brand and style of uh, of Republican politics. Would you have more in common with Biden, do you think, than, than Trump? I doubt it. Uh, I, I doubt it. I, I think, um, you know, look, I accept some of the things that Trump's been able to accomplish as uh, having been good for the party. But then there are things that I don't agree with. I, you know, I tend to be uh, a little bit uh, more of a a dove on immigration policy, for example. Um, 
So, you know, um, I think, you know, you pick the things that you can support and then the things that you don't like, you just uh, set it aside, which is uh, kind of the, the way I've approached it. So do you think he can he can win despite your skepticism around him? And uh, as we stand, the, poll, the polling doesn't look great for him. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic that doesn't seem to be slowing down. There's going to be a huge recession, probably maybe even depression of some description. Um, what, what, what do you think the outcome would be? And if Trump can win, how, how does he, as a strategist, how do you think he does that? Well, I think he, um, I, first of all, of course he can win, uh, you know, the 85 days or whatever we've got left is a long time in politics. Um, and, you know, I think the path back to the White House for Trump is uh, really basically the same states that he carried in 2016. Um, he can he can probably give away Michigan or Pennsylvania. He'll need to win one of those two and Wisconsin and hold Florida and Arizona where it looks like it's a lot tighter of a race. Um, but I, I, I think the... Um, you know, some in the media who think that this election is over because Biden's got a 10-point lead uh, just need to look back to the 10-point lead Hillary Clinton had in 2016, sure. and, and uh, you know, realize that there's a lot of there's a lot of time left. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made. There's a lot to be revealed. So there's a lot of campaign left. I I, I think anybody who thinks this is over um, needs to just look back to 2016 and see the same circumstances unfolding. Yeah, and the October surprise, that's always something to look out for, right? Right. Well, there may be uh, may need to be a September surprise because the amount of early voting that will take place because of the pandemic means that these votes will be, a lot of them will be locked in by the middle of September or at least the beginning of October. Uh, so a big chunk of the vote will be cast uh, a lot earlier this election cycle than in any time in history. Um, yeah, we mentioned the comparison to 2016. Do you think Biden's a, a, a better candidate than Clinton? I think it was certainly reflecting on what I understood of Clinton from the UK. I was surprised when I got over here in 2016, quite um, the, how how divisive a character she she was, and perhaps that isn't going to going to be a, a factor this time round. Biden doesn't seem to divide opinion like that. Um, how, how do you rate him as, a, as an opponent to Trump? Uh, I think he's a better opponent than Hillary Clinton in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the problem and the comparison you could make is, is you know, he's been around Washington uh, longer than anybody. And at a time when people, uh, you know, there still is a, you know, a, a, large block of voters who think that Washington is a problem and don't like what's happening there, whether they ascribe it to President Trump and the Congress or not, um, you know, having had, you know, five or six decades of experience in Washington isn't necessarily uh, helpful uh, to any campaign right now that, you know, sort of given the sort of anti-establishment, anti-Washington, anti-coastal, you know, sentiment running through the heart of the country, um, that, I think that gives President Trump the best chance in places like Wisconsin and Michigan. It does seem bizarre, counterintuitive almost, that, that Trump could run as the incumbent and the outsider at the same time, and only Biden really gave him the opportunity to do that. 
Well, I mean, he's also a New York billionaire who in 2016 ran as a uh, man of the people, uh, you know, who told it like it is, uh, as opposed to a New York billionaire. And so uh, he has an ability through message and, and the language that he uses and kind of the his ability to tap into the sort of grievance politics that he has used so successfully. Um, you know, he is kind of unique in his ability to run a message that is absolutely counter to what you might expect, given where he comes from, who he is, how much he's worth. And the fact now that he's been president for four years, he can still, uh, I think he still has that ability to incite, you know, um, uh, you know, opposition to Washington among people in his base. And a lot of that is due to how he's been treated as president. You know, the, the you know, from day one, it, it, I, I think he's successfully cast himself as, you know, kind of a victim of the liberal coastal elite media. And, uh, you know, he, his, his defenders and supporters really sort of see that as uh you know, his kind of stamp on how to take on Washington, the deep states out to get him, the, the, you know, uh, you know, cable news is out to get him, uh, liberal, uh, you know, the swamp, uh, you know, he, he just has a, um, an ability, I think, to, to message to people, uh, you know, in a way that is, um, you know, it's gonna, gonna definitely keep him in this race. And I do think we've seen it tighten a little bit in the last couple of weeks. And as we get closer, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be, if I were Biden's people, I wouldn't be taking my foot off the gas. Thanks to David for his insights. Just to wrap up the show with Sharish and Ariel, I wanted to do something a bit different. The idea is to help our listeners in the UK by providing them a cheat sheet something they could say in the pub to make them sound intelligent about US politics. Let's think of it as service journalism or something like that. So I'll throw you a few questions. If you can reply with some smart things for them to say, that will be great. Uh, Sharish, if there's one state that's going to decide the election, what one state will that be? Florida. Okay, why? Because if Biden can manage to win there, the game's over. Right, let's try another one. What is the point of a vice president? I think in the UK, we're brought up to think of them being a heartbeat away from the presidency. Is there anything more to that than just being a spare part? Ariel? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's having another leader of the party who can be a voice of the party and a sort of expression, especially with Biden, who's a very advanced and age candidate of where the party wants to go and a signal of, you know, building a coalition beyond what Biden's positions are. So I think it's a very visible symbol of what the party wants to be. And if Trump loses, what does he do next? Be really mad, play golf, and then be mad some more, get on his Twitter account and yell. That's a, that's a really excellent question. Some people have thought that, well, he, he's just going to stay engaged with the party and just throw bombs. And he could. Yeah, I mean, I think in true to form, whatever it happens will probably involve Donald Trump spending a lot of time watching Fox News and tweeting. I think we can expect that. Probably the bigger question to me is what the rest of the Republican Party is going to do. 
are the Republicans Trump's party now, do you think? That's a fascinating question. And it's hard to know until we see what direction the party is going to go in if there is a loss. But it's been so totally reshaped as a party in the last couple of years that it's going to be really interesting to see what happens if Trump is then taken out of this party that's very largely molded itself around him in the last couple of years. Yeah, a lot of Republican critics say it's no longer a party, it's a personality cult of Donald Trump. And it is. Well, I think that just about does it. Um, thanks for joining me, Sharish and Ariel. And thanks everyone for listening. And I hope American politics makes a little more sense. I think we've probably established that while Trump's chances of another win look unlikely, they're not impossible. Though it's worth bearing in mind things are different to 2016. And not least, Trump has a record to defend this time. His presidency is not hypothetical. Next time we'll be taking a closer look at who Joe Biden is and what he stands for and, and this bit fascinates me, why he keeps challenging people to push-up contests. Uh, more on that. Um, please do subscribe now for more episodes and make sure you check out HuffPost UK's other podcasts. They include Commons People which is our weekly look at UK politics. They're all available in the usual places. Um, thanks, everybody, and speak to you again. <laughs>